0: Welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the podcast that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I am your host, Lauren Burke. And I am your host, Hannah Chapman. And this week, we have a little bonus content for you, uh, something that's adjacent to our current season on literary tourism. Today, we are discussing L.M. Montgomery's piece, The Alpine Path, The Story of My Career, Now, this was originally published as a series in 1917 for Every Woman's World, a Canadian women's magazine.
1: And like I said last week, I actually haven't read any of Ellen Montgomery's stuff. Uh, I did watch both seasons of Anne with me on Netflix. And so for me, this was like the first piece of writing of hers that I'd actually Mm. read and it was all about her career. And Mm. yeah, I just I loved this essay so much. Like one of the best things we've read on the show in parts. It was weird. Well <laughs> It's very up our street, isn't it? Like Yeah, definitely. Like a first hand <laughs> account of her career from the time she's a child to an adult. Excellent. Really yes. here for that. Uh it starts with this poem and she basically explains that she had it pasted on her little like drawing uh writing board. And so she'd mm-hmm. look at it every day. And I just thought to help frame why it's called the Alpine Path, Lauren, if you could just read us the poem. Okay. I'm gonna read us the poem and I actually might also
0: steal this trick from Montgomery. I might frame this and put it up next yeah, to my computer. It's good computer. It? <laughs> put it on a post-it note next to my computer. That'll that'll inspire me. Okay. Then whisper, blossom in thy sleep, how I may upward climb the alpine path, so hard, so steep, that leads to heights sublime. How I might how I may reach that far-off goal of true and honored fame and write upon its shining scroll,
1: a woman's humble name. I love it. Lovely. (laughs) And so the whole essay is this long, winding tale. It takes us through the highs and lows of her career. We get totally lost in Scotland at one point towards the end, which I (laughs) wasn't a big fan of. But mostly I do think it's an incredible piece of writing. And when I was writing the notes for this, I was just going through like line by line and just saying, love this line. This is a great line. And you can't, you can't do that. It's too, it's too long. That's just an audio book with a director's commentary at that point, isn't it? Yeah, basically. <laughs> so I did want to share one quote, just first of all. Um, and it says, was not, should not a career be something splendid wonderful spectacular at the very least something varied and exciting could my long uphill struggle through many quiet uneventful years be termed a career and I think that's the that's the question of the piece isn't it like the whole the whole way through she keeps asking it And then, so that she frames that in like the first paragraph. And so she's like, what career? And then in the second paragraph, she's like, oh, Prince Edward Island is really nice. It's like the best place on the planet, love it. And then she just starts listing all of her ancestors. Yeah, she's like, like, let's go back to the beginning. Yeah, right, I mean, not just back to her beginning, but like hundreds of years in the past. And then it kind of ends on Aunt Mary Lawson, who she praises as being the formative influence on her childhood. And it does all seem very humble. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm here to talk about my career. But before I do, here is where and who I came from. And you need that to help contextualize what yeah. I'm writing about and like how, how I'm writing. Mm-hmm. So I really liked that. It was unexpected. It's like also so funny
0: because I bet this magazine was like, right, this is a fluff piece. This is a simple essay for like, you know, Montgomery, just, you know, a chance for her to brag a bit, you know, offer a little career advice. But instead, she just like offers them a book like, oh, OK, mm-hmm. OK, can't can't do 10,000 words on this. Got to do like 60. <laughs> Sorry
1: well, she about doesn't, that. I feel like any young writer who's like, I'm going to read this and find out how to have a career as a writer. And she's like... And now you have to work for it. <laughs> yeah. Ah, oh, it's so good that way.
0: Um. So what I, what I love about this piece is that it's just like LM figuring out how this career happened, and it's almost like she's doing that with the reader mm-hmm. too. So it's a really nice bit of storytelling. And um, I just you know wrote uh, in my notes that uh, writing is a lifelong occupation, and just like nothing happens overnight. And this piece is just a good. reminder of that Um, here's one quote that I highlighted have had a difficult time trying to arrange enough spare minutes to do some writing oh that's like so everyone (laughs) also I wrote Gaskell (laughs) (laughs) stream of consciousness women writers names are coming you know in my notes anyway I could not write in the evenings I was always too tired besides I had to keep my buttons sewed on and my stockings darned Then I reverted to an old practice and tried getting up at six in the morning, but it did not work as of yore. I could never get up out of bed as early as I could when I was a country school ma'am and found it impossible to do without a certain amount of sleep. I mean, yes, I feel this so much. I also have the same struggle. I'm like, should I get up at six, work out and get started before my daughter gets up or should I
1: just work? late into the night and be tired all the time unclear tired all the i mean i think you're going to be tired all the time (laughs) either way yeah yeah i i really like that i really like that quote i highlighted that one as well like especially the second half just when she finds it impossible to do without a certain amount of sleep because then you start to feel guilty as well it's definitely like if you don't do it, then you feel bad. And then that's not like a good kind of mind frame to even try and be doing additional work in. I really, really loved the excitement she feels about kind of leaving that job as a country school mom to Mm -hmm. go and work for a newspaper. And, you know, just, she's kind of out there, she's doing it. That reminded me of Susan Farr who we knew wrote for a newspaper, right. and there's a line where she says, I'm a newspaper woman, exclamation mark, in her journal. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yes, that's so One exciting. One step closer yeah. to the dream, really. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, another great quote. When people say to me, as they occasionally do, oh, how I envy your gift, how I wish I could write as you do, I am inclined to wonder, with some inward amusement, how much they would have envied me on those dark, cold winter mornings of my apprenticeship again it's just her career is like it's work it's effort it's staying up late it's getting up early it's a drudge it isn't glamorous it isn't fun like it isn't just
0: a gift i mean i think this is something that we come back to time and time again on -hmm. this podcast like no one that we know of just sits down and writes and that first draft is perfect and it flows perfectly and they just are gifted and touched by god and it's it's all great um, it's work. It's the work of it, and she's saying like, "Oh, actually, this is work. You can do it too. It's it's not easy."
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah,
0: because now, of the hours
1: in. We did skip ahead a little bit because it's that's the exciting stuff, right? When that when mm-hmm. we get to that section, I was like, "Here, I here we are. I'm here for it. Great." But there is that beginning part. Uh, before we get to the meaty career sections uh, where we have that beautifully realised backstory about her ancestors and Prince Edward Island as a place. So last week, while we were recording, Lauren and I had this whole conversation just about how the term regionalist is used to describe writers and how often it can be used negatively, especially in the case of a woman writer. But then Mm -hmm. in this essay, I almost feel like LM is defiant in her love of Prince Edward Island. Mm -hmm. It's very, it's like... I'm going to tell you about why this is the best place and why I would want yeah. to write about it, and it's like explaining yeah. that.
0: You can see like how her writing is just really infused with that love of like place and history mm-hmm. as well. Um, so yeah, it's just it's kind of like in LM's case, the shoe does really fit. And um, here's a really good paragraph. I love this one. It's uh, right at the start of the essay. She says. I was born in the little village of Clifton, Prince Edward Island. Old Prince Edward Island is a good place to be born, a good place in which to spend your childhood. I can think of none better. We Prince Edward Islanders are a loyal race. In our secret soul, we believe that there is no place like the little province which gave us birth. We may suspect that it isn't quite perfect any more than any other spot on this planet, but you will not catch us admitting it and how furiously we hate anyone who does say it. So she's just really like mythologizing this place. Mm-hmm. She's really bringing you back. She's like telling you about the people um and this other quote which I really enjoy as well. And yet we cannot define the charm of Prince Edward Island in terms of land or sea. It is too elusive, too subtle. So it's like she's spending her entire life like trying to capture what's special. It. Yeah. Yeah, which I think is really interesting. So I'm like, okay, so we can we can call her a regionalist in the sense that this is it feels like this is what she's trying to work out in her work.
1: Yeah. And I just wanna like kind of present so I had never heard anyone be described as a regionalist until fairly recent well in maybe like the last couple of seasons of doing this I just hadn't come Mm -hmm. across it as a term um and I read Joanna Russ's how to suppress women writing and it's mentioned in that so then every time it's come up since I've just always thought about this one paragraph in Joanna Russ's book sure so I thought I'd share it to kind of give some like wider context of uh when we use terms to describe women writers, sometimes they can be the right term, sometimes they can't. Like when we were talking about Northanger Abbey and just like, is it satire, is it parody? Like make sure, mm-hmm. you know, like, because there's context and you right. can like misapply stuff. So Russ says, it seems clear that the term regionalist, so often applied to women writers, indicates not only that the writer in question concentrates on a particular region, but also that the work is thereby limited and not of broad interest, and therefore of interest not primarily for literary reasons, but for its sociological or quasi-historical interest. The regionalist is a second-rate fictioneer, a documentary maker. M- manky I don't know what that word is that last one I, will, <laughs> no, I was trying to yeah, figure I out. To say that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so thinking about Russ's definition of the term is then I think doubly interesting with LM because she's mostly categorized as being a children's writer right. so that's another way of reducing a woman's work so she may she may be like an active regionalist but that is gonna mm. p- some people will dismiss her work it's like a double-edged sword for oh, like, the same reason. Yeah, so it's just, yeah, I just think it's interesting. A little food for thought. So while I was reading this
0: essay, I just kept thinking like that this piece reminded me of something. And then it sent me down a rabbit hole, like trying to find other pieces by other female authors Um, that I could compare it to. Like, I was like, oh, did Louisa May Alcott write something similar? Did I was just like, who did it? Who did it? Um, And the only things that I was coming up with was like, I don't know, Eudora Welty has a book called On Writing. And Willa Cather has a collection of essays also called On Writing. Um, But those are more about like the actual craft versus how they got there and how they put in the work, Mm -hmm. um, which is, what i was really interested in then i realized this piece reminds me of agatha christie's autobiography oh. which um is delightful i highly recommend um it also has like sort of this playful tone it also um sort of ro- romanticizes events and i think a lot of christie uh, critics also say you know you should take it a little bit with a grain of salt, as well as I think something that Trina kind of mentioned on last week's episode that maybe we should take this this essay with a little bit of a little grain of salt. Um, but I think that that's particularly interesting because um, like they're both storytellers and they're both like trying to entertain you and yeah. also give you their truth at the same time and like contextualize it for you. So. I mean, I don't know. It makes sense.
1: Yeah, I think that it was reminding me a lot of um, stuff that I'd read. And then I realized it's because she includes journal extracts. And it was reminding me of journals that I'd read. Oh, really? Because journals sound <laughs> the same. And I was like, oh, yeah, she's written a diary. I've read this. <laughs>
0: yeah. I do like that she's referencing the diary. Oh, and. Yeah. um that is, and just, yeah, pulling that out almost as evidence. Yeah. Like, see, here's this here's this entry, and this is what happens. Um, there's this one story that I highlighted towards the beginning of the piece um, to kind of just sort of uh, show you guys what I mean by, like, romanticizing these events in her life. So this is when she's very young, and it's after her mother has passed. And she says... Where is heaven? I whispered to Aunt Emily, although I knew well that whispering in church was an unpardonable sin. Aunt Emily did not commit it. Silently, gravely, she pointed upward. With the literal and implicit belief of childhood, I took it for granted that this meant that the portion of Clifton Church, which was above the ceiling, there was a little square hole in the ceiling. Why could we not go up through it and see mother? This was a great puzzle to me. So she's like, "Oh, my mom's in the attic. Heaven is upstairs." Yeah. This is a sad story, I mean really when you think about it, but she has like given it this like light playful tone. You know, she allows you to sort of laugh
1: at her, you know. It's really sweet and also i think on the point that you're making about mythologizing that happens when you tell stories like mm-hmm. again and again like there's certain stories that you have and you'll tell either you tell them to new people that you meet or you like their family stories that you share again and again and i think so much of this essay at least at the beginning, is just on the importance of oral Mm -hmm. storytelling, especially those stories that are then shared across the generations, like the stories of her ancestors, and then also moments like this, because you can definitely just imagine her like telling that to people from almost from the point it happened, like when she's old enough to start laughing at herself. Right. Um, And there's this beautiful line. um, Grandfather liked a dramatic story, had a good memory for its fine points and can tell it well. Yeah. And like coming you can just tell like how much importance she's mm-hmm. put on that as like a skill. And it reminds me of my grandma like telling us stories about my dad while we all just like sat around like this big dining room table eating pudding and it's the same stories mm-hmm. every time. I think my dad would get really pissed off when she did it. But we'd be like, Tell us the story about dad falling in the brook and ruining <laughs> his trousers again. It's not even a funny story. But Well Yeah That oral still like That oral
0: storytelling, too, I mean, that's where you also, like, work out your gift as a storyteller, right? Like, when you're telling your friends' stories at the pub or whatever, like, you see what lands in real time. Mm -hmm. And that's, like, how you work out your material. And if your material, like Anne of Green Gables, is steeped in your own history, inspired by real-life events... I mean, it's almost like a stand-up. Like, you're like, okay, that landed. I should actually maybe exaggerate this point. Maybe I should reduce this. And then, here you yeah. go.
1: And it's always painful when someone is not a good storyteller. And they're telling a story. Yeah. And you're just like, you're burying the lead. Yeah. You're giving me too much information. Yeah. I don't need, like, just, let's get, let's keep
0: i know someone and i love them very much but they give me too many details that are not relevant to the story is it me no (laughs) (laughs) and i'm always like wait is that important do we go down wait no okay no this is this is where we have to go i i will say this um one of my old roommates and one of my closest friends he was uh lovely person he's not like a bad storyteller but he like you'll go like hey how was your day what happened today and he'll be like oh not much and then like 20 minutes later be like oh this one weird thing happened and it will be like super weird and you're like whoa (laughs) why why did you not like text me as that was happening (laughs) that is wild and it was like big stuff like oh yeah like I was mugged this morning but it's not a big deal and you're like what (laughs) so so yeah um but I can tell from reading this essay that, like, she's not that gal.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. She
0: tells you right away what's going on.
1: Well, until <laughs> until we get to Scotland. Yeah, right. there
0: are actually there are some details that we're like <laughs> we're not really sure we
1: need. <laughs>
0: um, about halfway through the essay, we get back to the idea of career. Thank goodness, my favorite topic. Um, she says, "So ran the current of my life in childhood." Very quiet and simple, you perceive, nothing at all exciting about it, nothing that savors of a career. Some might think it dull, but life never held for me a dull moment. I had in my vivid imagination a passport to the geography of fairyland." It's interesting that halfway through the essay, after she has recounted us with all of these like childhood memories, that LM then begins talking about career again and she remarks that there is nothing that savors of a career.
1: Yeah, which is weird because it's like you're a child still. Yeah, and, um, You haven't, <laughs> when are you meant to? So I remember reading it and just being like, at what point do you think this career has started? Because so far yeah. you are just like a little babby girl. And like, then it just made me wonder like, Is it a modern idea that a career is something that's pursued as an adult? I mean, childhood definitely, like childhood or finding yourself lasts Mm -hmm. a lot longer these days than it did then. So um, maybe that's like an element of it. But like I wrote stories in like old exercise books and I uh, I had a picture of a dog, a published in a magazine when I was, like, oh. very young, so. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah. not working the start on that career. Of, like, but is that the start of it? Like, does that count? Great question. Because we haven't even... It's only after she says that that we even get to her talking about reading. So... <laughs> well, I do wonder, like, yeah, for a writer,
0: does it start that early? Because, you know, I can remember wanting to be a writer at six years old mm-hmm. and saying... Yeah, this is what I want to do, and writing Little Mermaid fan fiction, which would which would come in handy later on, guys. It actually did work, but (laughs) like, is that where we start? We say okay, we start at six years old, or do we start at like when I first got paid for publishing, or like when where does the career start for a writer? Unclear. I
1: I mean, I guess childhood. Brit picking that Harry Potter fan fiction at the age of fifteen, and helping American children write a more authentic British experience (laughs) should have told me I was going to get a master's degree in transnational writing (laughs) right (laughs) it all adds up it does I mean so I remember reading it and just being like that's so weird but yeah actually it it isn't like it just maybe you do just start really young I don't know yeah so yeah so she finally at this point, quite deep into the essay is like, oh yeah, I like read a ton. And then I, I've condensed this like quite big chunk, but she read really widely. And I loved like everything mm-hmm. that she says about, about reading. So I've taken some stuff out. I've tried to condense it. Um, she says, it goes without saying that I was passionately fond of reading. We did not have a great many books in the house, but there were generally plenty of papers and a magazine or two. What books we had were well and often read. I always loved fairy tales and delighted in ghost stories. I thought of you, Lauren. Indeed, to this day, I like nothing better than a well-told ghost story warranted to send a cold creep down your spine. But it must be a real ghost story, Mark you. The spook must not turn out a delusion and a snare. And then she goes on to say, uh, I did not have access to many novels. Those were the days when novels were frowned on as reading for children, and then poetry, fortunately, poetry did not share the ban of novels. I could revel at will in Longfellow, Tennyson, Whittier, Scott, Byron, Milton, Burns. Poetry poured over in childhood becomes part of one's nature more thoroughly than that which if first read in mature years can ever do. Yeah, love that Hits bit. Hits all the bases, man. She's like, got my poetry, Great. got my ghost stories.
0: Yeah. Here's, you know, the attitudes on novels at the time. Very helpful. Bit of information, actually. Um, Here's what I read. That's the other thing that I actually also love is when we talk about what they Mm -hmm. read, right, on this show. And um, it's so helpful to know. And every author that we cover on this show has a love of reading. I mean, that's the, like, the big thread, right? It's like everyone read. They read widely. They fucking loved it. Yeah. And that's also like the number one bit of writing advice, isn't it? Whenever someone's like, "I want to write a graphic novel. What's what? You know, what should I do in my graphic novel to stand out from other people?" And it's like, "Why don't you go read a
1: bunch?" Yeah, I that's I remember seeing like a big Twitter thread about people saying like, "I don't I don't read other people's comics. I just make my own because I don't want to yeah. like, copy." And it's like, "Cool." So I guess novelists don't ever read. Yeah, <laughs> what is that?
0: And it's also like not about copying too. Like sometimes you read, it's like inspiration comes in many forms. Like sometimes I'm reading something and I'm like, oh, I don't like this. I would do this. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, there's an idea.
1: Yeah. So like, I don't like Amsterdam by Ian McEwen. I will never read another book by a man. I'm sorry <laughs> I made that mistake. Cool.
0: You just keep reading Ian McEwen, though.
1: No, it's just, that's just the one book. I just bring it up the one world. book because I read it this year and it really pissed me off. <laughs> <Did> <laughs> like not it really it annoyed me. <laughs> just think about how annoyed I am by it all the time.
0: So then we get to this amazing bit that she shifts from her reading to her recollections on writing, which is very good. So she says, I have written at length about the incidents and environment of my childhood because they have had a marked influence on the development of my literary gift. A different environment would have given me a different bias. Were it not for those Cavendish years, I do not think that Anne of Green Gables would ever have been written. When I am asked, when did you begin to write? I say, I wish I could remember. I cannot remember a time when I was not writing or when I did not mean to be an author. To write has always been my central purpose, around which every effort and every hope and ambition of my life has grouped itself.
1: Yeah, I yeah I love that bit yeah. because it's Great. also, I think it's doing a few things there. It's like explaining why she's given us that information in the essay. It's explaining why Anne of Green Gables is the book that she wrote. And again, just speaking back mm-hmm. to that regionalism thing, it's like if it hadn't been for those Cavendish years, like it's not even just Anne of Green Gables would ever have been written. It's like yeah. what she's, the content would be completely different. So Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of, that's such a nice bit too, because it kind of gets it like, one of the things that we're trying to do with the literary tourism season, just like think about the places where they wrote Mm -hmm. and how that, you know, affected their career. And here we have someone just like-
1: Laying out. Telling us outright. Yeah, and I really like that she goes on to tell us about like her early attempts at writing poetry with a school friend. She doesn't just jump from Mm -hmm. saying like, oh, I wrote all the time, then I wrote this best-selling book that was cool she tells us about when she's 12 and she sat there with her friend writing uh, at school and then getting into trouble and then she has this like stack of poetry that she's written and she's been hiding it from people which again made me think of that What was that short story i listened to on the new yorker recently and i told you about it it was the who the haunted the haunting of hill house one Who wrote that? Shirley Jackson. Shirley Jackson. And Shirley Jackson Mm -hmm. wrote a short story about a young girl whose grandmother gets her to read like a secret poem that Mm -hmm. no one knew about. And it was making me think about that. And it's like, so again, here she's writing, but it's for her. It's like she's not showing it to people. She doesn't know how much merit it is. And then she actively goes out to try and find an impartial judge. And, you know, say like, is this good? Like, should I keep doing it? And I think I just loved how candid that story was. And just saying like, I didn't think I was great. I was like hiding it from people. I was embarrassed. And also Mm -hmm. I needed validation before I could consider myself a writer. I needed someone who wasn't me, who wasn't someone I loved. It wasn't like my grandma or a friend to say like, this is good.
0: So she reads this poem to a visiting lady who said the words were very pretty which is a little pr- enough praise to just sort of spur her on, right? Um, yeah. She then submitted her first writing to the Charlottetown Examiner. She when, was- Like
1: at that age, she was so that really age, young as well. She was like, yeah, very crazy. pretty,
0: let's do it.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Works for let's me. <laughs> um,
0: she was rejected and the poems were returned to her. And she says, my aspirations were nipped in the bud for a time. It was a year before I recovered from the blow
1: Yeah. Here.
0: Well, that's why starting young, it's good.
1: Yeah, because you got to get those years out of the way. Yeah, you do.
0: <laughs> but she resubmitted, and when she didn't hear back, um, she opened the magazine expecting to see her poems, but they weren't
1: there. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> she waited a year, and then they still didn't. They didn't even write her back the second time. <laughs> Didn't even respond. Uh, ouch. Um, she says, I drained the cup of failure
0: to the very dregs. Quite Although I can... <laughs> yeah, I know, That's quite, right? What was the,
1: the... The visions of romance were over. <laughs> I drained yeah. the cup of failure <laughs> to the very dregs. Our little postcard set is... Oh, my God. Yes, we should add that to the postcard <laughs> set. For sure. Just no. no.
0: Um, she continues... Although I continued to write because I couldn't help it, I sent no more poems to the editors. Yeah. Like we're done.
1: Yeah, I really I really like the the highs and lows of this section because she then mm-hmm. eventually does submit her writing again and she does get published in the Patriot and that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. And then she sends it to the New York Sun who pay but she doesn't get accepted there. So it's, yeah, it's not like a consistent thing because we have, um, yeah, Francis Hodgson Burnett submits at 19 and then she basically never stops writing.
0: Yeah. Just
1: from the She's just an
0: immediate success. Yeah. yeah. And so
1: to have this story of Ellen Montgomery having like, like some good feedback, some like not getting mm-hmm. accepted, getting accepted, not getting accepted. I think it's great. It's like diverse experience. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And
0: it shows her like recalibrating as well. Like, OK, what worked here? What didn't work here?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she says, like, you see, I had learned the first, last and middle lesson. Never give up. So it makes her dogged. It makes her like gives her the work ethic and the determination that she wouldn't have had. I think. Well, I mean, no, I say that because Francis Hodgson and Burnett just did it. So but Frances needed that money.
0: Yeah. She was desperate for that cash. Yeah, I think. True. I think for a while too, like she had natural ability and she had the need for cash. And I think the craft for Francis really comes over time.
1: Yeah, and also the other thing is that she was fast. That's the thing that's also mentioned. Yeah. She was just she like just got them out. She was really quick. Yeah, and she wasn't great, but she was just good enough to like get it accepted. Ellen would send stuff, mm-hmm. and again, that's a that's a really big thing I think with writing at this time, and even now to a certain extent is if you're doing it as a source of income, then being reliable and being steady and always having something to offer and have the next thing. You don't want that, then do you want this? You don't want that, then do you? Yeah. Whereas if you are too precious with it and you take those, it can take a little bit longer to get that momentum, which is what I think is happening with Ellen Montgomery. Yeah,
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Then when she is finally paid for writing, It was in two magazine subscriptions for a poem titled Only As Violet. So she didn't even
1: get money. She was (laughs) was just like, I have this magazine.
0: (laughs) So sad. (laughs) She was training in Charlottetown uh, to be a teacher at the time, then while working as a teacher and wondering in her journal if she would ever achieve anything of note as a writer, she gets paid. She's having like a wretched bondage yeah. moment. And then that check comes. <laughs> and then suddenly she gets paid. So she says, in the autumn of 1895, I went to Halifax and spent the winter taking a selected course in English literature at Dalhousie College. The Through the winter came a big week for me, in caps, in quotes. Um, On Monday, I received a letter from Golden Days, a Philadelphia juvenile juvenile accepting a short story I had sent there and enclosing a check for $5. It was the first money my pen had ever earned. That same week, she was paid $12 for another poem and won a $5 price for a letter on the subject, which has the greater patience, man or woman? And she says, never in my life before or since have I been so rich. I
1: just like that one week. It's crazy. It's, it's so good. Yeah. Uh, on, while we're on the topic of money, it comes up again and again, the issue of money, the issue mm-hmm. of earning from your writing. Mm-hmm. And I think that Ellen Montgomery is uh, defensive on the on the topic, mm-hmm. right? So there's this snippet from when she first sends writing off to um, a publisher And she says, the idea of being paid for them had never entered my head. Indeed, not at all sure I knew at the time that people were ever paid for writing. At least my early dreams of literary fame were untainted by any mercenary speculations. Interesting. And then it comes up again, basically every time money is mentioned or fame or success. She never dreamed of being paid when she imagined being a writer And she never expected fame when she was finally making a living from it. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, another quote is, I never expect to be famous. I merely want to have a recognized place among good workers in my chosen profession. And I just feel like it's almost like, it's okay that I'm famous because I didn't expect it to happen. Or like, is it having the desire to be famous is inherently bad. And I just wonder like, do male writers think this? Why does it keep coming up for the women we cover on this show? Yes, absolutely. Why? And why do biographers do it? Why do we I... why do we try and reduce their want for fame? Why do we try and reduce their want oh. for money? Be mercenary bitches. Just do yes. it. Yes.
0: I think about this so much. Like it's so funny that this is in the in the essay. <laughs> Cuz I'm like these are all the things that I just think about nonstop. Okay. So let's unpack this a little bit because, yes, now, being the women we are today, right, we want to, like, own our ambition. We want to own our success. We want to be mercenary about it. But um, I'm like, okay, is this a time period situation? Again, I want to bring it back around to Agatha Christie. Agatha Christie, yeah. Yeah, because I think that's one of the things that I sort of revisit time and time again with Agatha is her relationship with money, Mm -hmm. Um, because she sort of has like a similar attitude in her bio. I mean, like she starts off being like, oh, I'm just a girl who was married to a guy and I had this little writing habit and it was nice and I'd get a little bit of cash and then I'd, you know, redo my kitchen and it wasn't a career or anything. But the thing is, that modesty just doesn't ring true Mm -hmm. to me because you don't become an industry without that much ambition. I mean, the woman was like writing novel after novel. She was doing stage adaptations, radio adaptations like she was uber famous. This was a career. So it's like can you why aren't you owning it are you not owning it because it's vulgar for a woman to own her ambition is that what we're like sort of dealing with and unpacking here and then like by the end of your career when you're releasing this autobiography and you're in industry Mm -hmm. are both of them sort of like curating their legacy yeah sort of like mythologizing their own sort of origin story of like I always was about the words and the story and I was not about the fame and the money. Another quote, another gem that I really enjoyed in this piece. I have always hated beginning a story. So true. Mm. When I get the first paragraph written, I feel as though it were half done. The rest comes easy. To begin a book, therefore, seems quite a stupendous task. Besides, I did not see just how I could get time for it. I could not afford to take time from my regular writing hours. And in the end, I never deliberately sat down and said, go to here are my pens, paper, ink, and plot. Let me write a book. It really all just happened. So she's a a pantser, not a plotter, yeah. essentially. And once you get that first bit unlocked, all right, you're good.
1: Yeah, and I, I really like that bit. And also, we both highlighted the paragraph uh, about, like, the birth of Anne. And I think it's because she's mm. describing the process of writing. Again, like, you just get mm-hmm. every now and then, you'll just get this little gem. So she says, I had always kept a notebook in which I jotted down, as they occurred to me, ideas for plots, incidents, characters, and descriptions. In the spring of 1904, I was looking over this notebook in search of some idea for a short serial I wanted to write for a certain Sunday school paper. I found a faded entry written many years before. Elderly couple apply to orphan asylum for a boy. By mistake, a girl is sent them. I thought this would do. I began to block out the chapters, devise and select incidents and brood up my heroine, Anne. She was not so named of malice, aforethought, but flashed into my fancy, already christened, even to the all-important E, began to expand in such a fashion that she soon seemed very real to me and took possession of me to an unusual extent. She appealed to me, and I thought it rather a shame to waste her on an ephemeral little serial. Because that's what she was writing up until this point, she was writing these like short stories, these like serialized things that she was selling to mm-hmm. magazines that she'd been writing for magazines when she was working as a newspaper woman. So Anne of Green Gables was like her debut, like I'm going to sit down, I'm going to write a book book. Yeah, I'm going to
0: hold on to this story. It's yeah. actually too good yeah. for that, which I love that bit. I also love the other bit about the um the detail, like the Anne with an E. That's such a specific detail. It's a, like it's Seems like such a small Mm -hmm. stroke, honestly, Um, but it lends so much to that character. Like, I feel like it's one of those details that you're like, her name is Anne, but it has to be with an E. And she's she's going to, yeah, she's going to drill that into you and that you're like, oh, now I know who this character is.
1: And also I like to think as well, cause she's talking about like the incidents that will happen. And we know from the beginning of the essay, which kind of sets this up nicely, is that she's writing about her mm-hmm. experiences as a child, not just in Anna Green Gables, but mm-hmm. in a book called The Story Girl, a lot of the really early stuff. Um, so she's mining that content. So you can just imagine her sitting there and being like, oh, I can like, The thing that happened with Billy and the Sheep, (laughs) I haven't read it, so I can't think of a good example. I can use that here. That works better here. Like the ghost, Mm -hmm. like the the haunted wood. You know, the story club was real. That's in Anna Green Gables Mm -hmm. just being like, oh, I can use this. Yeah, and just kind of like jigsawing those pieces all together.
0: So L.M. began Anne of Green Gables in the spring of 1904 and finished it in 1905. She wrote it in the evenings after she came home from work. In this quote, she says write a book you have the central idea all you need to do is spread it out over enough chapters to amount to a book in june 1908 when the book was published she said not a great book but mine 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 something which i had created (laughs) not a great book. didn't live up to her standards maybe had not achieved i think it's very hard right whenever you put out a book I feel like you're really lucky if you get, like, 90% of, like, what you had imagined. I feel like there's always Alcott a negotiation.
1: Didn't like, Alcott didn't like Little Women. She wasn't yeah. She wasn't sure about it at all. And it wasn't until she got the proof back where she's like, oh, okay, this is, like, this reads fine. This is okay. Yeah. You're too yeah.
0: in it, I think, mm-hmm. as well. And I, I think it would be really difficult also if you had mined from your own childhood. (laughs) Like, I just don't know if I would be able to like, judge it sort of objectively, yeah. yeah.
1: Absolutely. And keeping on those Louisa May Alcott vibes as well, she does say in her, uh, in the essay, I can't remember if it was from a journal entry, but she says, with the publication of Green Gables, my struggle was over. And there is this one Louisa May Alcott entry after Little Women, when she says with relief that all of her debts are paid. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, yes okay, like this is the point, I've yeah. made it, I've arrived, great. And I just, I love seeing those personal reflections on arriving at success and what mm-hmm. pu- like publication of something as like weighty as Little Women or Anne of Green Gables can, can mean to these authors. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: absolutely. It's like, okay, now I can breathe and maybe, maybe write what I want to write Yeah. Or get a little riskier or like, okay, yeah, I'm not I'm not tied down by my debts. Towards the end of the piece, uh, LM is sharing diary entries from her travels rather than her years of writing, which I mean,
1: love traveling. It does feel a bit off topic. (laughs) I feel like it's she's like, now I've arrived. This is what I'm going to do with my time. That's yeah. Yeah,
0: that's true. I mean, it's great because I love a bit of travel writing, yeah. but I'm also like, I would like this maybe as a separate essay mm-hmm. would be my note because yes.
1: yeah, yeah, um, yeah.
0: I would love to hear all about this because uh, she has her own sort of like literary tourism adventures. So she says, um, our hotel and our meaning her and her husband, who she doesn't really, doesn't really talk about. <laughs> He's there. She doesn't even say his name, but I love, I do I like, too. like oh yeah, I got married. That's not important. Um, she says, our hotel is in Russell Square. Love Russell Square. Stayed there many times. The haunt of so many of the characters in Vanity Fair. One expects to see Amelia peering out from the window looking for George or perhaps Becky waiting for Joss. And it's just it's so funny that she's like in England in Russell Square, like diving around like, OK this happened here in Vanity Fair, this happened here. Mm-hmm. Like it's just, it's yeah, really, yeah. it's actually really, really cute. And it's funny because like little did she know people would run around Prince Edward Island like doing the same thing for her.
1: Yeah, doing yeah. exactly the same thing. Yeah, it's like we've said, it it just seems totally wild well to me that the diary entries are included, but also nice because she is making this trip that I don't think she'd have made as a school teacher. Right. So this is it's only possible because of her writing. And if you think about the poem as well as getting to the top of the Alpine path, I think for her, because she's, she's Scottish descent. And so being able to travel from Canada to Scotland and like go around the land of her forefathers is what she's talking mm-hmm. about. I think that's beautiful to see like what writing has enabled her to mm-hmm. do. So I do think that's really cool. But yeah, just stick in those whole journey and it just goes on. It's really, <laughs> it's long. really long. It's too long. <laughs> it's like watching a really boring slideshow when someone comes back those... I feel bad saying it but I just think there's too many of them it's like a quarter of the essay those
0: magazine editors must have been like it's like if you ask Oprah like okay let's get Oprah to just give us a paragraph on like her success and we'll put it in you know this fluff piece and yeah. then she like sends back 72 pages and you're like I mean it's Oprah we've got to run it I don't know what
1: to do yeah I'm glad as well I'm glad that you highlighted the Russell Hotel bit because obviously uh, cats right that's how i know russell hotel (laughs) is that literary tourism so i saw it and then in my head and i was thinking in the in this episode you could like maybe play some of the cats music but i wasn't sure if that was oh wow so do i have to i would i have to like sing it for people to get the Mm. reference or because i don't feel comfortable doing that but in cats you can you can read it you You can just read it like you could play a clip of it and if you can't there's a bit in cats and it goes up 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 past the russell hotel up 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 to the heavy side layer and that's like the chorus. And it's I never it didn't make any sense to me. But now I understand it's a reference to LM Montgomery. So that itinerary makes me think of you because it sounds exhausting. Yeah. And in one of the last journal entries, she says, I am replete with sightseeing. I want now to get back to Canada and gather my scattered household gods around me for a new consecration.
0: Yeah. It sounds exhausting. It's great. It sounds great. I love exhausting. <laughs> um, so really that's almost how we leave things. LM has succeeded and success meant travel and the chance to experience something otherwise impossible had it not been, you know, for her writing. Uh, and the marriage did not end her career, uh, as is often the fear of many of the writers that we cover on the show. Uh, yeah. Like, you know, she says, since my marriage, I have published four books, Chronicles of Avonlea, The Golden Road, and of the Island, and The Watchmen. The the famous comic, The Watchmen, obviously. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I like that. La- yes.
0: The latter being a volume of collected verse.
1: Yeah, I do I mean, we said earlier as well, like husband not mentioned, yeah. right? He goes on this trip without her. He doesn't take her mm-hmm. limelight. And yeah, it's just I like I like that. It's not the end. Yeah. And that's the fear. There is a line almost the last line but not quite and it does bring us full circle back to that poem the alpine path has been climbed after many years of toil and endeavor it was not an easy ascent but even in the struggle at its hardest at its hardest there was a delight and a zest known only to those who aspire to the heights and i think this is one of my favorite things that we've read one of my favorite like short things mm-hmm. i definitely took a lot from it even with all of those Scottish diary entries and so I just want to say Lauren do me a solid if we're ever asked to write about our careers don't let me include my diary please. I mean we have done lots of like road trip
0: diaries that we air on the show. Oh like when so- we're eating sausage rolls. Yes. <laughs>
1: it's just Oh, that that's a highlight yeah. yeah i always think about why we thought that we'd was be able to record appropriate. Sausage rolls at the same time we're sorry it's disgusting <laughs>
0: formal apology issued so we hope to bring you some more of our road trip diaries uh, from pei someday in the future but in the meantime we are going to be back next week with uh more literary tourism. Um although I do feel like this episode was very on brand for literary tourism, actually. Like like I thought it was was gonna gonna be a a bonus, but but then it it does feel like it actually fits with the season. So I think that's great. We're good like that. So a lot of you guys in the comments um for the last episode and in our sort of informal Anne of Green Gables. Uh, read along, you shared a lot of your photos of actually going to PEI. I do feel like everyone has been to PEI except for us. Everyone has read yeah. all of Montgomery's work except for us. Yeah. But maybe we're Both bringing you truth. guys something new with the essay, uh, my, my hope.
1: Maybe. <laughs> but
0: um, if you wanna show us more of your photos, and I hope you do, visit us on the social medias. And Hannah, what, what are those? What is that? What's
1: the internet? You can find us as always on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us bonnets at dawn at gmail.com and you can find us on Facebook by searching for Bonnets at Dawn and just agreeing to our group rules. Sounds Easy good. Easy peasy. Easy peasy. All right. Thank you guys. Bye. Bye.